Hey, I'm Christopher Schiefling. Thank you so much for joining me for Auscultation, a podcast in search of a humanities-based practice of healthcare. Today we're listening to excerpts from The Botanic Garden, Part 2, The Loves of Plants, by Erasmus Darwin, a physician, botanist, and poet who is perhaps most famous for being the grandfather of Charles Darwin. There are a few things to know before hearing the poem. First, dropsy is the archaic term for conditions that cause excessive swelling in the legs and belly. Second, Tantalus is a character from Greek mythology who is punished, according to one version, for stealing ambrosia, the food of the gods. His sentence consisted of being trapped in a pool underneath a fruit tree where the branches were always just beyond reach, and whenever he leaned down to drink, the waters receded, only to rise up again when he gave up. Third, Hygieia is the Greek goddess of health. Interestingly, the words tantalize and hygiene come from these two Greek figures. And finally, digitalis is the flower commonly known as foxglove and has medicinal properties. Excerpts from the Botanic Garden, Part 2, The Loves of Plants, by Erasmus Darwin. Bolstered with down, amid a thousand once, pale dropsy rears his bloated form and pants. Quench me, ye cool pellucid rills, he cries, wets his parched tongue and rolls his hollow eyes. So bends tormented Tantalus to drink, while from his lips the refluent waters shrink. Again the rising stream his bosom laves, and thirst consumes him mid circumfluent waves. Divine Hygieia, from the bending sky descending, listens to his piercing cry, assumes bright digitalis's dress and air, her ruby cheek, white neck, and raven hair. For use protect her from the circling throng, and like the nymph, the goddess steps along. O'er him she waves her serpent-wreathed wand, cheers with her voice, and raises with her hand. Warms with rekindling bloom, his visage wan, and charms the shapeless monster into man. Some thoughts on dropsy. We now know that dropsy is mainly caused by failure of either the heart, kidneys, or liver. However, during the 18th century, these different etiologies were not yet understood. Curiously, though, in these lines, Darwin presents sufficient information to identify that the patient has heart disease rather than in-stage liver or renal disease. First, he describes the patient as pale dropsy, with his visage wan. Such pallor rules out cirrhosis as the source, because this would present with jaundice, or yellowing of the skin. The distinction between heart failure and kidney failure is harder to assess, 
Both diseases will cause pallor. Kidney disease by causing anemia and heart failure by having reduced blood flow. And while heart failure is more commonly associated with shortness of breath, he pants, renal disease can cause this too. For me, what ties the bow on the diagnosis of heart failure is the observation of his hollow eyes. Nephrosis, the type of kidney failure that causes particularly severe swelling, classically causes periorbital edema, or swelling around the eyes, which is clearly not the case here. All this to say that to a modern clinician, Darwin seems to establish the diagnosis of heart failure and rule out liver and kidney failure. And he does it all within the first four lines. It's quite impressive. Of course, he was not actually identifying symptoms of heart failure per se, but rather identifying characteristics of patients who were likely to respond to digitalis. Not only will this medicine only help patients with heart failure, it will actually be quite dangerous in people with kidney disease. As a result, it was important to differentiate between the type of patients who would benefit from digitalis and which patients would suffer even more with the treatment. The use of the myth of tantalus is very appropriate for all conditions of dropsy. Patients with heart, liver, and kidney failure frequently suffer from thirst, even though their bodies are full of extra fluid in all the wrong places. And drinking more will often only cause more swelling with little relief in their thirst. Because of this, patients with these conditions are often told to restrict their fluid intake, even if they are thirsty. As a result, they can be in the same dilemma as Tantalus, where thirst consumes him mid circumfluent waves. Moreover, knowing that he has heart failure makes the punishment all the more cruel. There is a recently described phenomenon that many patients with heart failure have difficulty breathing when they bend over. So Tantalus attempts to drink are a waste of breath on many levels. This symptom of shortness of breath with bending has been called bendopnea, but as Dr. Falk points out, this is a jarring combination of Old English bend and Greek apnea for breathing. I much prefer his suggestion of camptopnea. So for all the clinicians listening, please ask about this symptom and please use the term camptopnea. Which nuts should people with heart failure eat? Peanuts and pistachios. Some thoughts on digitalis. Digitalis is a genus of flowers commonly known as foxglove. Extracts from its leaves contain chemicals that can regulate the heart's rhythm and improve the strength of its contractions. The first description of digitalis for dropsy in the medical literature appeared only 10 years before the publication of this poem. I can't emphasize enough how seemingly miraculous the dissemination of digitalis must have been. It has been called the first modern medicine and is, in fact, the basis for the medicine digoxin, which is still prescribed 
for conditions like heart failure and atrial fibrillation. At the time, however, most treatments were at best placebos, and often they were downright harmful, like the popular practice of bloodletting. In contrast, digitalis, for the right patient, seemingly cures dropsy in a matter of days, or, as Darwin puts it, charms the shapeless monster into man. With this wonder drug, it became much easier to compare physicians to their divine counterparts from Greek mythology. Such an elevation in image would have been all the more impressive given the notoriety of the barber surgeons. Today, the recognition of digitalis's medicinal properties is uniformly attributed to Dr. William Withering. As the story goes, he identified digitalis after he managed to coax out the secret recipe from a Shropshire woman who was famous for her tea that helped with dropsy even when the doctors couldn't. However, the credit for this discovery was quite controversial at the time. Erasmus Darwin, the author of today's poem, was actually the first to publish about the use of digitalis for dropsy. But Withering argued that Darwin had only learned of digitalis after he, Withering, helped him treat a patient with refractory dropsy. In review of both physicians' accounts, historians believe that Darwin's publication was indeed plagiarism of Withering's work. Of course, Withering also failed to name the woman whose recipe he used to identify digitalis. In the 1920s, however, as part of a marketing campaign, a drunk company invented the name Mother Hutton and greatly elaborated the story of her revelation to Withering. While likely unintentional, the myth of Mother Hutton helps challenge the much larger modern myth of attributing discoveries to a sole scientific genius who is almost inevitably male. Why is swelling a misnomer? It's horrible, and there's nothing swell about it. Some thoughts on the staff of Asclepius. In a Disney-esque flourish, Hygieia delivers her cure when o'er him she waves her serpent-wreathed wand. Many listeners in the U.S. may picture a Caduceus, or a staff with two entwined serpents and topped with a pair of wings. However, the Caduceus actually belonged to Hermes, the Greek god of commerce and thieves. Whereas the wand Hygieia uses would be the staff of Asclepius, who was her father and the Greek god of medicine. The conflation of the Caduceus as a symbol for healthcare began in the 1920s when it became the symbol of the U.S. Army Medical Corps. The origin of this initial confusion may have been from a popular medical publishing company at the time that used the Caduceus as its insignia. Many bemoan that this misunderstanding is emblematic of the increasing commercialization of healthcare and argue for the removal of the Caduceus as a medical symbol. Historical inaccuracy aside, 
I like the twin serpent's symmetry and resemblance with DNA, and how the origin story of the Caduceus is that Hermes pacified two fighting snakes by placing his staff in between them. My objection to the Caduceus is its crowning wings, which, with their association with angels, continues the stale link between healthcare and divinity. The other question is why the association with healing with snakes. According to one story, Asclepius learned to heal after he killed a serpent with a staff and then saw another serpent revive its companion with herbs. Another explanation is that the process of shedding skin was seen as a form of revitalization. Curiously, some argue that the image is much more literal and comes from the treatment of guinea worms, which involves wrapping the parasitic worm around a stick to provide tension to help remove it from the patient's skin. Excerpts from the Botanic Garden, Part 2, The Loves of Plants, by Erasmus Darwin. Bolstered with down amid a thousand once, pale dropsy rears his bloated form and pants. Quench me, ye cool pellucid rills, he cries, wets his parched tongue and rolls his hollow eyes. So bends tormented Tantalus to drink while from his lips the refluent waters shrink. Again the rising stream his bosom laves, and thirst consumes him mid circumfluent waves. Divine Hygieia, from the bending sky descending, listens to his piercing cry, assumes bright digitalis's dress and air, her ruby cheek, white neck, and raven hair. For use protect her from the circling throng, and like the nymph, the goddess steps along. O'er him she waves her serpent-wreathed wand, cheers with her voice, and raises with her hand. Warms with rekindling bloom his visage wan, and charms the shapeless monster into man. The Botanic Garden, Part 2, The Loves of Plants, by Erasmus Darwin, was published in 1790 and is now part of public domain. You can find show notes for this episode at anauscultation.wordpress.com. Auscultation is produced and recorded on the ancestral home of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. If you enjoyed this episode, Please rate, follow, or share to help others find out about us too. Until next month, be kind and live the questions.